you know, in the infinite banking world, we're not even just planning two, three, four, five years in the future. We have charts that we show people 200 years, which could be two, three generations of how to keep this family bank, we call it, in the family and how it'll get passed down to a trust. And then that trust can fund more policies for kids, grandkids, whatever, and really scale it out over two, three hundred. There's no end to it. an amazing journey that I know many entrepreneurs and and real estate investors are going to be inspired by. And um, it's really led you to some pretty cool stuff in your life. Uh, But before you got into real estate investing and infinite banking, you were out uh, keeping the streets clean in uh, law enforcement. Like how how did you get into that world? And then what led you into going, I'm going to leave this W2 behind and really kind of dive into the real estate world? Yeah, absolutely. So my my background before, you know, all of this was in law enforcement. I was a Philly cop. Um, you know, my whole life was I, I knew I was either going military or law enforcement. Military didn't work out. I got into the police academy after college, went through all of that. I started working as a cop on the street. Um, kind of just I, I fell out of love with it real quick, you know, and I think many cops, if anyone's listening, kind of feel that way too. It's it's like one of those p- professions that you know, you, you want to do so badly, but once you actually get into it and you see the politics, you start going to court, you see, you know, uh, all the, I don't want to really necessarily call it corruption, but you see the internals of how it all works. Um, and I really fell out of love with it. You know, I, I had great supervisors, great cops that I worked with, but I really, I really fell in, out of love with the profession of it. Um, and and especially where I was at. So it's cool. I mean, you get to do... People, people like the, the guys that train you, they tell you it's the best, best show on earth. Um, and it really is. I mean, you see everything from, you know, horrific kind of things and you see like really awesome things too. So, I mean, I've seen, uh, I've been there for like a baby being delivered, you know, I've seen people, you know, shot and killed and you see both extremes from, you know, everything. And it's, um, it's cool. I mean, there's, there's a lot of cool things. So obviously being the one that people call for when they need help, you know, it's cool being that. And like, you do have some grateful people, but then you also have the people that hate the police and, you you know, do with the best of the best and the worst of the worst. Right. I always like, you know, the guys that I worked with, we were in a a part of the city that was known for, you know, how much heroin and and the opioid addiction. And we were weekly, you know, using Narcan on, on people that were literally dying. And once they would come back to it, after they get hit with the Narcan, they just curse you off because you ruin their high. And it's like stuff like that is so, you know, unfulfilling where, yeah. which, which, you know, they're in a whole different state of mind, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I fell out of love with it pretty quickly. What was it about kind of, you know, whether it was the military or, you know, law enforcement that initially attracted you to that space? So I learned quickly and it's kind of funny too. I, I always, thought I would love not having a, you know, a standard day where it's like, Hey, you know, you're going into the quote unquote office, not sure what's going to happen today. I thought I would love that. I really did. And when you're in that world, I started hating that life where, you know, you would, you'd clock into a shift and have no idea what you're going to get into tonight. You know, it could be an easy night or you could be, you know, 
chasing people and, and doing dangerous stuff. And it's, I thought I would love that aspect of the career. And I, I actually hated it because it was just, you know, I'm a very structured person. I like to, you know, have everything in a line. And when you're, when you're kind of working that profession, like there's a lot of similarities and, and common things about a shift, but you never know, you know, if the car that you're stopping is going to turn into something or, you know, it might not be, and it could be an easy shift. You never know. And I, I always hated that just going into my shift with the unknown of, you know, what's going to happen tonight. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like building a bigger pipeline with real customers customers, leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this Deep Sales, and LinkedIn has built the first Deep Sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. What was kind of the event or day or kind of timing that kind of broke the the camel's back there. You're like, all right, man, enough is enough. I got to figure out what's next. So it kind of, you know, obviously when you're, when you're a cop or, or any kind of W2, you're trading time for money. Um, and I always knew that no matter what rank I make, no matter how hard I work, there's always going to be a cap on my income. You know, yeah, I can study, I can take tests. I can, you know, climb through the ranks. There still is always going to be a cap on my income. And I really hated knowing that because it felt like I was kind of just, um, you know, I was kind of just just struggling with a limited potential, if that made sense. Um, yeah, financial quicksand. Almost. Exactly. Yeah. And it was, you know, at that time where I started, you know, researching real estate because my, my dad is he was in construction and I, I came across obviously bigger pockets like a lot of, you know, real estate investors kind of dug into real estate for probably a year or two. And I mean, I, I was that guy I work, I worked overnight every night. So, you know, while other cops were, you know, just uh, hanging out in their car, we'll call it, um, you know, I was always up and reading. So I, I couldn't even tell you how many books I was reading at night and just studying real estate, dove into a couple flips, some wholesales, um, actually, you know, got like a base around and it was kind of perfect timing where, my dad was starting to retire. He had all this construction experience, always as an employee though. He was never you know, an investor himself, never owned any rentals, anything like that. Um, and I was always picking his brain, you know, like, hey dad, you know, I wanna go look at this house. Can you come with me, you know, and just, just look at the construction costs and stuff. So it, it kind of worked out, you know, perfect timing where he was kind of like half retiring. He was doing some consultant work and I was learning, you know, how to finance deals, how to find deals, things like that. 
he was coming in with the construction experience. So we partnered on a few deals. Um, him and I bought some rental properties. Eventually, then I, I partnered up with some other people, um, bought some rentals on my own while I was a cop still. So all okay. of this was, you know, I didn't want anybody at the department knowing that I was buying real estate and stuff. Um, How come? Was it kind of like taboo to be doing things outside of yeah, law enforcement? Yeah, exactly. So it was, and I didn't want supervisors, um, which it's, it's a shame that it's like this, but I didn't want supervisors knowing that, you know, I had other income um, coming in and, you know, potentially at the time was, was making more than them because it was, I think you would have got some, some crappy details if they found out about that, just from a, a pure ego standpoint, you know, if this cop with a couple of years on was, was doing well. So that kind of led to then buying properties, which all kind of led to, you know, I, I discovered the infinite banking concept during all that, because obviously, you know, a real, real estate investors, um, you know, need is for more capital, more capital you have, more deals you can do. Um, I actually came to my firm as a client before I started, you know, working there and started utilizing infinite banking for my own personal investments, um, which then that led into getting my sales license as well, because I was paying realtors to, you know, sell houses and, and to represent me and stuff. I figured I could just do it myself. So I I got my sales license to represent myself. And at first I was only doing my own deals and then just friends and family. Um all of this kind of switched in 2020. So we had some, you know, the, the the riots of 2020, people call them. And it was it was a time where I really, you know, just flipped that. I, I lost faith in the mission of the police department. Um, mm-hmm. And that's when my wife and I, we basically sat down and we were like, look, you know, what am I doing? You know, it's the the risk, which is not even just your you know, you're not even just risking your life anymore, but your freedom too. I mean, there's our district attorney is loves to lock up cops for doing their job. Um, so you're you're risking your life and your freedom. And it got to a point where my wife and I were like, "Look, it, it's not even worth it anymore." You know, the salary that they're paying you is not worth the risk. I already had income coming in from from real estate at the time, and just transitioned fully. So, you know, in 2020 is when I finally resigned from the police department. What did, what did that look like? It was scary. Um, it definitely scary. I mean, just we, so we had, you know, reserves, which, which, you know, added for some peace of mind. Um, but it was just, you know, no longer a, a steady paycheck where, you know, it, it was like peace of mind money. Whereas now I have to go out and, you know, make my own money. Um, which was definitely scary. Yeah. So what, what was the plan for, you put in the resignation and yeah. all of this freedom, at least time freedom of I don't yeah. have to show up for this uh, this beat anymore. What what did kind of the transition look like for you leaving that W two and security and you know becoming a full time entrepreneur? Yeah, so um, it what I did and, and it was all worked up to it. I knew I I would say after a year of being a real estate or just learning it and, and kind of breaking through that. Um, you know, limited belief of, hey, I had to work 40 years here and get a, a you know, a pension. Once I broke through that, it was only a matter of time till I was leaving. I knew I was not going to climb the ranks. I knew I was not going to stay for the pension. I knew I wasn't going to be there long. So, you know, I kept, it, it's funny too, when you always say that in your head, like, oh, you know, I'm going to leave soon, whatever. When the day actually comes and, and, you know, you're handing in your gun and badge and it's like, you know, oh crap, you know, this is kind of real now. So I definitely struggled. I, I remember like, 
just not having a set work schedule was kind of tough. And it wasn't even so much like waking up early to, to meet a, you know, a shift or anything, but it was just the fact that when you're, when you don't have to report to somebody that mental kind of, um, not even a block, but it's just like, oh, uh, you know, I, I could go to the gym now and start working an hour if I wanted to. Whereas when you're, you know, working for somebody else, you have to be there at eight o'clock, you have to be there at eight, eight o'clock. So then I kind of had to like get, you know, serious with myself and give myself, you know, a set schedule because I, I found that, you know, hey, when, when you're your quote own boss, you, you tend to be flexible with yourself. And, and I, you know, I learned the hard way that that wasn't the right, uh, you know, necessarily way to go about it. So um, I, I went into real estate kind of heavy, you know, in, in sales. Um, so I started taking on more clients. I, I saw more potential with that than investing at the time. Mm-hmm. So this is all, you know, I started investing in 2016. So, you know, between now and, and 2016, it was kind of hard to um, pick up a bad deal. You could buy a deal and the appreciation itself would save you from a bad deal. Um, right. And so then in 2020, I stopped buying, which is when I left the police department. Um, so I wasn't buying any more properties, um, just focused on, you know, I, I saw sales commissions as being, you know, a really great revenue stream that, you know, I could potentially build out this, this big team and had the contacts for it. I have, you know, my, my whole sphere of influence is cops for the most part. So I have, you know, I'd say 80 to 90% of my clients in sales are all law enforcement or first responders, um, which is great for me because it, you know, it's, it's funny too, where cops and, and some military and everything, but it's a very hard audience to sell by. They're all, they're skeptical no matter what the the product or the service is, you know, and having now, Hey, this guy's a former cop, you know, he'll represent us on selling our house or, or buying a house. It just puts you at that next kind of credibility level with them versus, you know, I mean, there's 10,000 agents here in the city. So um, it gave me an advantage over a lot of them. So I, I really scaled out the sales team from 2020 until now, still doing that. I've kind of backed off a little bit of my own um, personal time of working with buyers, showing houses and everything, but still building that. Um, I had plans to build that, you know, fairly large. I, I don't want to get, you know, ahead of myself and, and grow too fast um, with the sales stuff until I have a, a better team in place. But I stopped buying real estate and just focused on the sales and the um, infinite banking clients. So that's interesting. And I know we'll get it to the, the IBC stuff here in a minute. Most people are trying to get out of sales and more into real estate investment. Talk about your mindset around you were buying, you know, from 2016 yeah. to 2020. And then you decided to kind of put the pause button on with mm-hmm. acquiring assets, which most people would equate to, you know, generating income and generating yeah. wealth. What, what was kind of your mindset around that? So I was actually, I was on, I was interviewing somebody else and him and I were talking and it brought so much clarity to like a question I've kind of struggled with for years. And it was that he, he told me, you, I forget how he worded it. Um, you never want to escape your job with something else. You want to chase your passion. And I realized that's where I was. I was using real estate, real estate to escape my day job of being a cop. Whereas I wasn't really chasing my passion. My passion was, you know, infinite banking. And, you know, I, I built up these, these rentals. I was doing these flips, managing contractors, um, partnering with my dad, which, you know, can get a little tough sometimes. Um, 
but I realized real estate was my escape. It wasn't my passion at all. Mm. Um, I love real estate as an asset class. I'll continue to invest in it in, you know, as an LP and stuff. But I had completely fallen out of love with being an operator of real estate investing. Uh, a lot of the houses that I that I had were in like class class C and class D neighborhoods. I was buying in my districts that I was working, um, which was great. You know, I'm not opposed to that investing in those neighborhoods. But I, it, it's funny too. Like post police life, driving down in these neighborhoods. Now you know I have to walk two three blocks to get to a house, and I didn't want you know people recognizing me of you know, maybe I had locked them up, you know, in the past and I don't remember their face, but they remember mine. And I kind of, I stopped wanting to go down there anymore. And it was just a whole mess of, um, not even a mess. It was a whole different things that just, you know, I, I finally got clarity, like, you know, look, I'm not a real estate investor. I enjoy being an LP in real estate as an asset class, mm -hmm. but I have no desire at all to operate real estate anymore. I love that, dude. I mean, so, and, and I love that you're being honest about that and with yeah. yourself about that. Cause I think so many people glorify real estate investing yeah. and it becomes so romanticized of how sexy and amazing that's how I was passive real estate is, right? Oh, no. And then you get into it and you're like, this shit is hard, man. Like yeah. this is it's tough not only to buy right and to get them financed, but you said a key word, which is operate. You know, that is mm -hmm hands down, the hardest part in real estate is operating and managing your assets at a really high level. Yeah. And maybe for some of those that are um, thinking about getting into real estate or, you know, romanticizing about how sexy real estate investing is, I think we're all in agreement that real estate is hands down one of the best wealth building vehicles on planet Earth. Absolutely. And yet that comes with some caveats. What were some of the things that... um you know, you learned or you encourage others to understand or research a little bit further to determine how they want to go about investing in real estate? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, something that I kind of learned about myself as well is, you know, I'm not by any means a, a Dave Ramsey, you know, all debt is bad kind of person, but I did, you know, you have to figure out what your risk tolerance to personally guaranteeing debt is because, you know, I understand good debt versus bad debt, but when you're actually the one guaranteeing, you know, seven figures of debt, it can, you know, it can scare you a little bit. And I definitely learned I didn't like that. Um, you know, everything was secured by real estate, but I did not like having um, that kind of guaranteed debt. So, um, you know, that's something else that I, I fell out of love with too. Um, you know, like I said, I, and a lot of people, you know, yes, it's good debt. You, you can argue that whole point, but it's still, you know, it has your name on the line. Um, so, you know, I would encourage people, you know, real estate's great if that's your passion. Um, I'm very big on, you know, if you're, if you're working, what your purpose, what your God-given purpose is, you know, it, it shouldn't feel like work to you. And mm -hmm. that's how I feel when I'm, you know, working IBC clients in different cases. Whereas with real estate, it was work. Um, I really didn't enjoy the aspects of it. And like I said, I enjoy, you know, the, the investment, um, the asset class, but I did not enjoy, you know, going out to find deals, looking at 30 houses just to buy one. Like it, it just is so time consuming for, um, I wouldn't say little reward because there, there definitely can be some, you know, yeah. massive, massive, uh, 
uh, wealth building in in real estate, but it's it's a matter of that's it's a matter of if that's what you want or not. And I just realized that's that wasn't what I wanted. Yeah, when people ask me if I absolutely love real estate investing, I and I tell them no, they're almost kind of like yeah, they they were expecting a like a hell yes type of answer. And real estate investing is really not one of my passions either. You know, yeah. like I, I started off wholesaling. I started off as a realtor, started off wholesaling, then flipping, mm-hmm. and then getting into, you know, buying holds on commercial. And then really it led me to my passion, which is hospitality and, okay. um, you know, hotel assets and other things in hospitality. But real estate investing is is tough. It's not for the faint of heart. It's a grind. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of risk that comes with it. There's a lot of stress that comes with it. There's just a lot of BS that comes with it too, right? Like you said, tons of upside that can get unlocked. But I personally was not passionate and still am. I I will continue investing in real estate because of the wealth building aspects of it. But in terms of like, is it my passion and what gets me so excited and fired up to wake up for every single day to attack? Mm -hmm. It's it's not. It's not. That's the answer. I had a, a coach that I was working with and he, he, you know, called it like an identity crisis where, you know, when I left the police department, I wanted to be this real estate investor. I wanted a thousand units and everything. And then, you know, I realized that I once, once I realized that I, I really didn't like real estate investing and the way I kind of realized that was, he was like, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm full-time working with my IBC clients. And he said, you don't see, buying properties a part of that? And my answer is hell no. <laughs> and that's when he said, he was like, you're not a real estate investor. And I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. And then I stopped identifying myself as, you know, a full-time real estate investor. That's not what I wanted to be. Yeah. And then talk about that in terms of finding your passion. And what was it that, I guess, what was your first kind of um, interaction with IBC and and, and explain kind of what the light bulb moment was for you when you engaged with it. Sure. So I first heard the term infinite banking concept, probably when I was, I want to say 21 or 22. And I did just my quick search on it, thought it was a scam, put it you know aside. And then I'm at a real estate conference. Now this is like 20, I think it was 2018. I'm at a real estate conference and the next guy up on stage is his name's MC Lobsher. He's actually the owner of my firm. And he's now giving a speech on acquiring more real estate assets using um, high cash value life insurance, which is the whole method behind infinite banking. And I'm like, oh, you know, I, I listened to this. You know, I heard about this before. I, you know, I'm interested to see what it says. So then I, I listened to his, his whole talk during this conference. And when like I went behind, um, to the not behind the stage, but back in the like conference area, he was out there and I was talking to him and I said, Hey, you know, like MC, I actually reached out to you a couple of years ago and you designed a policy for me and I, I never followed through with it. And then at that point, it, you know, with a whole room of real estate investors and some pretty, you know, bigger people in the world in the room, everybody's interested, everybody's asking questions, everybody, you know, was really intrigued by this concept. And he was talking about different case studies of people that he was working um, with. And that's when I kind of like, okay, let me, let me give this a second look. So I bought, you know, all the books, did all the research. I eventually got, you know, the light bulb moment where I was like, oh crap, this kind of, you know, this really makes sense. At the same time too, I was, you know, one of my kind of other passions is exposing uh, 
you know, how corrupt some of the, the central banks and, and Wall Street really are. And there's there's kind of like a give and take role. You know, if you're not going to keep money here, well, where do you keep it? And then that's where life insurance comes in as, you know, being that great option. Um, so I went like full force into just researching IBC, started, you know, my first two policies with MC, um, started using my policies to acquire more assets, more, more flips, um, you know, anything that, that required a, a large sum. So at that point, MC, because he's local to me as well in PA, he was like, hey, um, you know, I, I really want to build out like a sales team. Would you have any interest in, in getting your sales license since, you know, you have firsthand experience here? You know, I think that would be a real asset to the firm. And I said, you know, absolutely. You know, that sounds really cool. So went, got my life insurance license, and then I got my um, practitioner cert, they call it, with the Nelson Nash Institute, which is essentially... Uh, Nelson Nash is considered the founder of, of Infinite Banking, um, and he started his own institute training life insurance agents how to design policies properly for this concept. Because uh, there's, you know, unfortunately, it's a high commission, it's a high commission in industry, so many agents get tempted by the way they can design policies for their own benefit and not the client's benefit. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast and trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that of, you know, the, the right way and the wrong way of doing it. Sure. And what is, in your opinion, to start the wrong way and oftentimes the experience most people have, hence why there's a stigma. We yeah. hear people say life insurance or infinite banking. It kind of has yeah. this taboo. I don't know if I trust it type of, um, you know, kind of narrative around it. Okay. So life insurance... And you're right. It gets such a bad rap, and it's it's so misunderstood because when people think life insurance, they just think death benefit. You know, hey, when when I die or something, um, you know, a death benefit's paid out to the beneficiary. That's just one aspect of life insurance. So if if you think of life insurance, you know, from the top down, there's permanent life insurance and there's term life insurance. 
term is obviously for 5, 10, 20, 30 year term. You know, if you were to pass away during that time, you would get a death benefit. Permanent life insurance, there's several different products. There's whole life, there's universal life, equity universal life, variable universal life, all kinds of different products. Each one of them has, you know, different pros and cons to it. Within infinite banking, we only deal with whole life insurance. So you do not use IULs, you do not use equity universal life. Those are tied to the stock market. Whole life insurance is not. So now under the whole life insurance umbrella, there's death benefit that everyone knows of. You know, if you pass away, your family or your beneficiary, we usually structure it to be a trust, gets a death benefit. There's also living benefits to a life insurance contract that most people don't know of. One of the living benefits to a life insurance contract is a cash value account. So your cash value account is just a bank account you log on to, just like you would, you know, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, wherever it is you keep your money. You can log on, see a bank account with money in it. Most people don't even, you know, realize that. Well, this cash value account, it grows guaranteed. It's paid a guaranteed interest rate, plus you get dividends. So, you know, then you go back up to the whole like um, insurance. So there's stock insurance companies, there's mutual insurance companies. A mutual insurance company is fully owned by the policy holders. So that means that there's no stock holders and any profits the company makes goes back in the form of a dividend to the policy holders. So when, when you're talking about designing an infinite banking policy, we want whole life insurance with a mutual insurance company. We wouldn't really, it's not that you can't use a stock insurance company, um, but mutual insurance companies have a better track record. So these companies have been around for 200 years. Um, now, within that, when you're designing a policy, so as a life insurance agent, you can add all different riders. You can have different splits between you know, base premium, paid up addition premium, um, all kinds of stuff. A life insurance agent has a power to control their commission. So there's some ethics involved here where you know, you could make a full base premium. If somebody said, hey, you know, I, I want to do 100000 per year premium, you could make that 100% base and the life insurance agent's commission is going to be extremely high. In the infinite banking world, we would, we would split that down to like maybe 30% base, 70, you know, sometimes even 80%, depending on their, their age and health conditions, split that to, you know, a 70-30 split or, or Nelson was, you know, big fan of the 60-40 split where you're shrinking your commission all the way down to here. The Nelson Natch Institute, you know, it's it's credible agents that are designing these policies because they they are passionate about IBC. Um, you know, there's not a, a life insurance agent in the world, and I'm not saying all life insurance agents are bad by any means, but I'm saying there are temptations where when you're in control of that commission, you could inflate that a little bit. Um, Whereas being a, you know, a part of the Nelson Nash Institute, we have a, a different code of ethics we have to abide by aside from just what the state gives us. Um, so that's kind of, I don't know, does that answer your question as, as a kind of whole? I went yeah, on yeah. There. And then I was going to kind of ask a little bit more around breaking down your experience with it when you were first starting out, you know, how did you engage with the vehicle itself. What did kind of that step by step look like for somebody that might be exploring? Hey, this this makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'd like to engage in life insurance. What was your experience and kind of how you started and initiated that policy and actually took it full circle? Okay, 
Um, so I started that policy. And, you know, the cool thing about insurance is when you collateralize that account, so you can draw, they call it a policy loan. Um, the money that's sitting in your account will continue growing. So for easy numbers, let, let's say you have $100,000 and you need, you know, 50,000 to put down on a flip. Well, if you have $100,000 in your cash value account, that's growing and compounding, and you could borrow 50 from it while you're still getting the full growth of the hundred. So that's, you know, one of the main attractive parts about it, which, you know, you scale that over banking, you know, drawing money and paying it back, drawing money, paying it back to your own policies. You know, it can be massive over time. So my, my first, you know, policy loans that I took were to buy rentals. So I would use a policy loan for my down payment, mix that with private money at the time, and then private or a couple hard money loans. But I ideally had a private investor I was dealing with and I would use my policy loan for my down payment. And then when I would refinance the property, just your typical Burr strategy, I would then use the cash out refinance money to repay my policy loan. And then, you know, I would do it again. And meanwhile, that whole time I had the outstanding loan, I was still gaining interest on the, the original principal. That's amazing. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's awesome. You really use this as a strategy to kind of build up your uh, cash flow, your investment portfolio. Just talk about what kind of equity buildup did you experience using this strategy? On, on like a percentage basis or? Yeah, just in general. Like, well, yeah. how many how many six or seven figures would you say it allowed you to go out and oh, yeah. create well, just by utilizing this one kind of strategy? Yeah, so, I mean, it was seven-figure portfolio value, not my my personal, you know, in my pocket, I wish, but um, I was able to, you know, do it so many times where, you know, I was burning houses and using the the down payment for a flip because I didn't have enough, you know, when I first started to fully fund a flip. Um, you can do that and plenty of people do. And that's a great strategy. I, at the time, I didn't have it. So I was just using my policy loans for the down payment, mixing it with private money. Um, and, in you know, it's infinite on how many times you can do that. So it's, you know, me personally, I, I had a, you know, large real estate portfolio of houses that I used my cash value policies for, um, you know, which is one of their, the reasons I became so passionate about it because had that not been in place, I still probably, you know, I still could have built the real estate portfolio, but I would have lost the compound interest from, you know, what I had in that, that policy from accruing over the years. Yeah. And so that's going to grow your entire life. Right. Uh, and it can get passed down to the next generation on a tax-free basis. So when, you know, in the infinite banking world, we're not even just planning two, three, four, five years in the future. You know, we, we have charts that we show people 200 years, you know, which could be two, three generations of how to keep this, you know, family bank, we call it, in, um, in the family and, and how it'll get passed down to a trust. And then that trust can fund more policies for, you know, kids, grandkids, whatever, um, and really, you know, scale it out over two, 300. There, there's no end to it. So what did that starting point look like? You know, lump sum of money gets contributed into the policy, kind of break down how one who may be looking to follow in similar footsteps as you, um, what, what did that look like for you? So yes, mine was a lump sum. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, it's going to psychologically feel better doing a lump sum because you'll have that cash value available, you know, in 30 days. Um, so you know, if you so pay there are no lockup periods on, in terms of when you can draw it down, when you can put it in. There, there is if you're paying monthly. So okay. if you're going to pay like you know a monthly premium, 
it's going to take your base first, then your paid up addition. Years one, two, and three, you won't see dollar for dollar yet in your premium payments versus your cash value. So it, it helps mentally, you know, if I'm going to pay a lump sum up front and just pay my full annual premium, then you can borrow from that, that cash value 30 days later. Whereas if you're paying monthly, it's going to take 12 months to get that full annual premium in there and then borrow from it, um, if that makes sense. So, you know, when it comes to amount, everybody's different. Um, we we tend to tell people, and it's not even telling, we, we recommend that if you can't save at least 10% of your income yet, focus on that, you know, and, and then come back to us, you know, once you're at that point. If you're not saving 10% already, you know, I think that should be, you know, a, a goal to at least lock that up. And then we can just place it, you know, rather than saving that in a, in a commercial bank, we'll save it over here. Um, and if, if you have the ability to do that lump sum up front, even better, it'll help, you know, psychologically um, of, hey, you know, I'm putting this money here. You know, at that point, it doesn't even feel like you're making premiums. It's just transferring money from checking account to high interest savings account. If that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. So as you kind of, Fund the policy, let's say somebody puts in a lump sum of 50K. Mm-hmm. 50K goes in, 30 days go by. What is the available um, kind of cash amount that they have to pull and draw on to go and reinvest into other things? And are there any restrictions in what they can invest in? So year one, you're going to be around 70, 80%. Um, it's going to depend on somebody's health conditions, age, things like that. So um, 70, 80% of that 50K they put in. Correct. Yeah. So the first three years, um, there's something called cash drag. And essentially what that is, when you you know, put yourself in the life insurance carrier shoes, if they're writing, let's just say a thousand policies and their actuaries are telling us, okay, you know, of these 1000 clients, you know, and I'm making these numbers up, 50 people are going to die and yep. we're going to have to pay out 20 million. Well, where does that 20 million come from? The 950 people that are still alive. So the first three years, you will not be dollar for dollar. Um, after year four, with our policies, if it's you know a healthy like 30-70 split, your, your increase in cash value will be greater than your premium year four and on. And it gets it gets crazy too. When you scale this out to you know 10, 20, 30 years, your your increase in cash value you know, can be quadruple your premium for the year. It's pretty crazy. That's awesome. So maybe what is, and I don't know if in your world, you guys have any kind of golden case studies of some of the best ways people have used, um, you know, their uh, infinite banking concept and their their life insurance policies. What are some of those that, you know, would get somebody excited or maybe to model after? All, all kinds. I mean, we've got a lot of clients that are real estate investors, um, a lot of, you know, just business owners in general that have, you know, high, high ticket equipment purchases. So, you know, somebody that's buying, you know, a whole fleet of trucks or anything that can finance it themselves rather than through a bank. And that'll keep, you know, the money inside of your your business economy where you're making payments back to your policy mm-hmm. versus making payments out here. So we always want to try to, you know, take back the banking function, you know, whether it's in our own personal economy or business economy. So you think about, you know, a bank's two main functions are to store money and to lend money. You know, other than that, that's the two main functions of a bank. So if we can create our own, 
in a quote unquote private bank where we can store capital and lend capital, that interest, you know, there's a lot of social media buzz of people saying like, you know, they're going to make money by buying a car, which is, I saw that that's crap. It's, it's not necessarily, I understand what they're, what they're trying to say, but you're, you're still essentially spending money. Um, now it's, it is the most efficient way to buy a car or to make, you know, big equipment purchase, you know, buy rental, buy, you know, a dump truck or, or whatever it is your business is. Yes. It's the most efficient way to do it, but I don't like the whole marketing of, Hey, you know, I'm going to make $200,000 just by buying this car. Um, uh-huh. You know, it, it doesn't matter what you buy. Yes, the account's going to grow by that much. Um, it's a little bit of marketing there, but I understand what they're saying. Um, but essentially, you know, as the cash value is growing, even when you're using it, yes, it's going to grow and you will make money, but you're still making a purchase over here. So it's kind of a, yeah. So do you guys have any kind of models or frameworks for if somebody says, Hey, I, I want to, and, and maybe you have clients like this that say, Hey, I want to have a million dollars in my bank. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of high level rule of thumbs of what that would look like for them? Is it, Hey, well, you need to contribute a hundred thousand dollars to your policy, you know, over the next X years. And here's what that looks like, or, or what would that look like on a just kind of generic high level basis for somebody that says, Hey, I want to, I want my bank to have a million bucks that I can pull on, you know, in the next decade. Yeah. So I, there's, you know, a couple different ways you can strategize it. You are going to have to make, you know, very high contributions. However, you know, it's going to differ. Somebody could be doing a hundred thousand a year or somebody could be doing 500,000 a year. Obviously their situations are going to be different. Um, you know, the, the interest and the actual yield that you accrue is usually around like 5% per year, but you got to figure it's not, you know, in a 401k or something where it's locked away until you're 59 and a half. This is locked away, but you can still use it and transact it with it. Um, the, the numbers are just going to be whatever whatever that is working backwards to get to a million. Um, I do have a cool client right now that his goal is, you know, hey, by my next birthday, I want to buy a Dodge Viper. And he wants to finance it through his own, you know, bank versus, you know, going to a commercial bank. So we're working the numbers backwards to make sure he has enough cash value by next August to where he can borrow, you know, what's needed to finance his own, you know, Viper. So there are, you know, you're, you're, if you're already set up that you're going to spend money anyway, it's just the most efficient way to spend it. Brilliant, dude. I love it. I love my, uh, my life insurance policy. Uh, it's been something that's definitely opened up a lot of different doors. Like you said, when you're not necessarily having to go and, you know, plead and beg for somebody to give you financing, when you have that as a real tool, it creates so much more flexibility yeah. and freedom to go out and I, get creative, right? Yeah, it's funny too. And, you know, it, it, like we were saying, it gets a bad rap. But when you really start to look at, look at the wealthiest families in the world, where they keep their money or, or where banks even keep their money, it all flows back to life insurance. Pretty wild. And you noted earlier on, we were talking about kind of our, our roots and heritage in, uh, you know, Germany and Austria. Where, where did infinite banking all start? So it's based on Austrian economics. Um, and, you know, what we're, what Nelson was really trying to do when he developed the whole concept was to take back the banking function without any kind of um, federal reserve, just creating an infinite amount of money. So there is a, you know, money supply that we're borrowing from. It's not, um, you know, when you think about it, if you put a hundred bucks in a bank, the bank can then lend more than a hundred bucks. Well, 
let's let's do some easy math real quick. Say they couldn't. Say they could only lend $100. Well, if you put $100 in a bank, the bank then lends $100. And we'll be generous and say the bank's paying you 1%. So their cost of capital is $1. They, they then turn it around. They're going to lend it immediately for whatever we'll say, you know, 8%. It's a uh, used car loan or something like that. So, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, they're, they make 8%. They made, you know, 8% on the hundred bucks. Well, their cost of capital was only $1. So they really made what, 700%. Mm-hmm. So they're making a $7 net profit. And, you know, rather than dividing that by the actual account they or the money that they lent, you divide it by their cost of capital, which was, you know, $1. So they're actually making a 700% ROI, not the seven. And it's a matter of, you know, being able to do that with our own personal, you know, private bank, we have a cost of capital and we're just going to use that to make our purchases, both assets and liabilities. This is why understanding finance and just, if you don't want to be the expert, right? This is the importance of having experts on your team, people that really do obsess over this kind of stuff, but having some level of financial literacy and understanding of these things are so critical when it comes to building wealth, protecting your wealth, yeah. um, growing your wealth. What are, you know, for people that maybe want to dig in a little bit more, I know you've done an extensive amount of research and obviously you have the licensing and the the professional, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of uh, designations, but for people that say, Hey, I, I want to just learn and kind of dig in and read more, what have been some of your favorite books and resources and, you know, kind of platforms that you've really gained a lot of value from? The, the, the best book to read is, is Nelson Nash's Becoming Your Own Banker. Um, it's, it's a 90 page book. Um, actually right here. So becoming your own banker is quote unquote, the Bible of, of infinite banking. Um, it's a 90 page book. It might take you, you know, two, three hours max, and it will absolutely change your life. So I definitely remember recommend reading that. He has a whole series of books that kind of build upon that afterwards, but that's the book that'll kind of just get you thinking differently. Um, and then it's, you know, there's, there's courses online. We offer one to our clients. Um, once they, you know, become a client, it's a matter of working with the right, you know, professional. So there's a ton of different firms out there. Some good, some bad. You know, I wouldn't, you know, say necessarily um, all of them are good or bad. You know, there's there's different firms and it's so you could go to a firm that has, you know, a thousand agents and, you know, 20,000 clients, or you could go to a firm, you know, we like to keep ours kind of small and boutique where, you know, we have four agents and, you know, maybe 900 to a thousand clients. And we know all of our clients on a you know personal basis. We know their situations, their industries. It's not just like a, you know, call here and set up an appointment with, you know, someone random. So, you know, take that into account. Um, if you're going to need someone to kind of hold your hand, it, it might be better to work with a smaller firm. If you just want, Hey, you know, I need this policy. I don't really need, you know, any, any coaching or any teaching then. Yeah. You know, uh, another policy would be, uh, or another brokerage would be fine. Um, and then definitely, you know, you want to work with a an agent that's an authorized practitioner. So if you go on infinitebanking.org, there's the Nelson Nash website, you can go to practitioner finder, go to your state or whatever, and you can see all the authorized practitioners in that state. Now, a lot of them are licensed. It's very easy once you get your license in one state to get it across all 50. So a lot of them are, you know, like our firm, we're licensed across all 50. And a lot of other agents are as well, because it's, there's, there's no, um, you know, added tests, they're all reciprocal with each other. So 
for you personally, knowing what you know now, what is what is kind of your long-term goal for yourself with infinite banking and how you plan to use it going forward? So my my goal is to obviously, you know, build up my cash value enough to where I'm, you know, leveraging it to put into different syndications and just different deals like that. How uh, how big is that in your in your kind of perfect world vision? 10 uh, million, 20 million? Yeah, million? probably. Yeah, I mean, definitely more. So it's you know, you have your cash value, but I'm also planning, you know, 200 years in the future. So I have my whole entire estate plan and my trust structured where, you know, my death benefit, my wife's death benefit goes into a trust and our trust is instructed to start policies to the max insurability, to the max insurability of any schnitzer born into our family. Um, and, and that trust, that pre, that policy will be owned by the trust, which will then grow and compound for, you know, 80, 90 years, however long our kids live that death benefit will go back into the trust. So, you know, when I'm, you know, in my lifetime, yeah, definitely, you know, multiple eight figures in my entire family legacy, you know, it, it's going to hit nine, 10 figures eventually. Brilliant, dude. I love it. Well, yeah. for people that want to connect with you, man, and obviously you're a wealth of knowledge. We only scratched the surface here today. Uh, and I appreciate you coming on, you know, sharing kind of your one experience and your journey um, and really how you've been able to leverage this vehicle um, not only for creating and building wealth, but you know the fact that it's created so much passion and fulfillment for you and that you're using this as a generational wealth building tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anybody wants to connect with you on this stuff, what's the best place for them to do that? Sure. So my my Instagram, I can send it to you. It's uh, schnitz93. Facebook is Carl Schnitzer. Um, I could send you my email as well. And then you can also just go on our website, producerswealth.com. Um, and there'll be a, there's a form of, you know, um, to get info, request more, whatever. And then I'll say, how did you hear about us? And, you know, you can put my name, you can put, you know, Matt, um, you know, it, it'll get back to me somehow. And then we can set up a strategy call. Carl, thanks for coming on the show today, man. Thanks, Matt. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you share it with somebody else who maybe needs to hear this today, or that could gain some value from something that was talked about or discussed in today's interview. You just never know one piece of information, a conversation a tool, a resource can completely transform and change the trajectory of someone's life or their business. So if you get any kind of value or you want to support the show, all we ask is that you help us organically get this in front of more people. Also, for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey and unlock more financial freedom, get more time back and just level up your life, your business, your finances, be sure to head over to therichlifeacademy.com to check out all the amazing products and resources that we offer to our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's one-on-one coaching with me, courses from our guests, all kinds of free content, downloads, checklists, upcoming event info, and how you can connect with us live, in person, all kinds of great valuable tools. You can get that over at therichlifeacademy.com. Last but not least, I always wanna know, who do you guys wanna hear me interview next? Let me know, shoot me a text at 844-447-1555. With that being said, until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March to Million and Beyond. Cheers, my friend.